to own another way of being, of doing things, of living in the world. Before we had to hide away, we lived out in the daylight. Before shaming was made lawful and all the women were jailed for loving our parts, hips. That's what the way was before. That's where the way was. The way was in the hips. What else did I own? Did we? It was a different kind of world, not like today, not like it is now. Not that it was better, but there were different kinds of worries. Not if there were going to be herbs, but what kind. Not if the land would grow fruit, but where? And how do we find it? It was a different kind of time. Children ran round red from the dirt beneath their feet. We dressed them in white so we could see the earth's brilliance inside the creases where the dirt don't touch in the creases. It was a different kind of time. Not like today, but everything like today where people so mixed up that everyone is trying to give everyone directions by pointing down their own noses at their own reflections, but convinced they pointing at their neighbor. What is this time, anyway? What is time, anyway? Anybody know? Anybody know anything? So, oh my goodness, what a beginning. We've begun. <laughs> That's an excerpt from my play. Well... I think it's in the play, a new piece called Tillon. But before I get to that, I want to thank Ben Williams and Category Other for making this day possible by extending this invitation to me to be here today. It's a great pleasure to see you, Ben. Hey. <laughs> I uh, also want to thank Kit Maloney, Eric Knuth, and Jim Leha for their donations that helped me make this occasion possible. Thank you for that. And thank you, listener. I know there are a number of things that you could have been tuning into on today, but you chose this. In a society that is not yet post-work, not even close, that is no small thing. And I honor you for making the commitment to be with this. So glad to be sharing this work with you. It's been a long time coming. So this play I'm writing is entitled Tiyong. Now, my black feminist scholars have taught me to always define my terms, so we'll begin with that one. Tillon definition. One, a series of headscarves or a large piece of material tied or wrapped around the head to form a headpiece, resembling a West African gele. Two, New Orleans word for the head wrap, a variation on the French word chignon, which refers to a smooth knot or twist or arrangement of hair that is worn at the nape of the neck. 
Three, mandatory headwear for Creole women in Louisiana during the Spanish colonial period. Four, a misunderstood source of power. A tillon is a headpiece. When I started writing this play, I was trying to figure out what it was I was doing in the piece, and I love theory and I having theoretical foundations, so I decided that I was going to unpack what it was I was interested in with the play, Tiyong, and how I was going to build this world. What I decided is that what I was doing in the piece was attempting to take a real piece of history and essentially reconstruct what was happening in between the words on the pieces of paper, or what's happening in the shadows, or what's happening in the whispers, the things we don't know. Which, I decided, was speculation. I decided that I was constructing a speculative history. So, I'm defining speculation as... one. The exercise of the faculty of sight, the action or an act of seeing, viewing, looking on or at, examining or observing. Two, a state of repetition and revision that may or may not produce a final draft, repeating oneself as a ritual of being together. That comes from Stefano Harney. Three, being together, producing thoughts specifically away from what capital might find productive often in the realm of slow temporalities. That comes from Constantina Zavitsanos. Four, imagining what exists that has appeared to recede or retreat into the background, yet also continues to reproduce. Fred Moten. Imagining what exists that has appeared to recede or retreat into the background, but also continues to reproduce. So, putting together speculation and history. Speculative history, then, is the exercise of the faculty of sight, the action or an act of seeing, of viewing, or looking on or at histories, examining or observing, interrogating the past from our various perspectives in time and space. Being together, producing thoughts specifically away from what capital has found historically unproductive, often in the realm of slow temporalities. Imagining the real history that has appeared to recede or retreat, but also continues to reproduce. This may or may not produce a final draft. Speculation is also a positional action. It has an inherent position based on who is doing the seeing. So how we see, imagine, and revise depends on where we are in space and when we are in time. Let's define time time, when we are as in, you know, born something something to right now, when we are as in our socio-cultural context, as in born in Jim Crow, living to Obama, when we are as in the day you catch me on. Maybe it's a side-eye day. Maybe it's a fantastic day. All of this has to do with how we speculate about history. Defining space. Similarly, space is where we are on the map. You know, the Midwest, the East Coast, where I am now, the Ivory Coast, Kathmandu, where we are environmentally, as in the projects, or a coal mine, or vacationing in Barbados, and where we are in life. Perhaps our second master's degree, a nursing home, at the grocery store using our food stamps. 
The point is that positionality can be endless, and each of us has a complex web of ways in which to place ourselves in relation to history. This also means that history itself is relational. It might look like a target with rings that get smaller and smaller and smaller and just keep going inward and inward and inward. It might look like a dodecahedron. It might look like a like the Epcot globe. <laughs> Time and space can get in the way of our speculation. Our sociocultural context can cause us to be fixed into a way of seeing. The isms of our lives permeate our viewpoints and cause tunneling that we must actively speculate against in order to see the more textured truths that give a more human picture. So things like sexism, racism, classism, ableism, heteronormativism, anti-Semitism. These are just a few. I'm sure you can think of others. Not only do these isms affect our lens in the West, they indeed are our lens. Centuries of colonization and conditioned seeing means that logic, A plus B equals C, reigns supreme, and acts of imagining or speculating are dismissed, patronized, and considered inferior to fact, which leads to speculative history looking more like the timeline of World War I, 1914 assassination of Ferdinand of Austria, to the 1917 British raid of Anchor, to on and on and on. A line of conquerable events involving guns and pens. Another way of saying this is, perhaps our history doesn't have the dimensions we'd like to think. Which is why, I can't believe this is happening in 2019, or I can't believe this is happening in 2020, or this just set us back 200 years can be harmful viewpoints. Why? Because time is not a colony, which is to say, who taught you to believe? Concepts of time have served colonial viewpoints. We must explode these viewpoints of time. We must say that 2020 is happening at the same time as 1720 and 1920 because that is what is true. Our positionality determines how in touch we are with this fact. This is why black women are from the future. Another way of saying this is, speculation is extremely valuable when imaginings of the past are real and the past isn't past at all and we are here but we are not and I am from the future. All black women are from the future because we are not meant to exist. If we only use sight to speculate and are only looking forward or backward, which is all a colonial viewpoint will allow, then we are underutilizing the power we have to imagine and therefore rewrite history. This act can save us. A quote from Horton Spillers. We are in a period of reaction now that is so strong that if we are not careful, the work we are doing now is going to have to be rediscovered. You know, people are going to have to keep doing it or rediscover it again or reassert it because the forces of opposition are so forceful and so powerful, they're always pushing against us. They always want to enforce forgetfulness. They always want to do something that forgets the African presence or reabsorbs it, reappropriates it in another way. So, 
What happens if we use thinking, feeling, and will as a means to see, to speculate? What happens if we use sound to relate to history? If we use color, if we use smell, if we use prayer, if we use our daughter's laughter, our feet, foreheads, follicles, bones, butts, and bellies, sound, sounds, songs, song. of seeing, viewing history from the perspectives of the unknown, the persons who lived and breathed outside of written histories. I started seeing differently when... I started seeing differently when I started asking questions I didn't know the answers to yet. And then came the songs. So I'm writing to Yon, where I speculate through and in and around 18th century New Orleans during the Spanish colonial period. Now, at that time, the Tillon laws composed by Gobierno Esteban Rodriguez Miró were enacted. In these Tillon laws, Miró describes free Negro and quadroon women as, quote, detrimental. He was, quote, suspicious of their indecent conduct and their extravagant luxury in their dressing, end quote. And as a result of his perception, restrictions were literally placed on their heads, as if their hair, our hair, contained some sort of gateway to power. These women, you see, were not exactly the same as the women in colonies under puritanical English rule. The Spanish slave code introduced the practice of cortación, the right of slaves to purchase their freedom. This policy of self-purchase originated in the Spanish perception of slavery as an unnatural human condition. But much to the Spaniard's surprise, cortación led to an increasing assertiveness of black New Orleanians by the year 1786, and something had to be done to reverse assertion. Esteban attempted to restrict black mobility by suppressing free black assemblies and banning concubinage, still too assertive. He then prohibited slaves from renting apartments, buying liquor, or dancing in public squares on the days of religious obligation. When that wasn't enough, Miro criticized black women for their quote, idleness, incontinence, and libertinism. This means one who is devoid of sexual restraint. And he demanded that they renounce their mode of living. He threatened to punish Afro-Creole women wearing feathers, jewels, or silks, and he prohibited adornment and mandated that Creoles, people of color, and black women wear their hair bound in a tillon as a badge of their lowly status and colonial society. The decree sought to unite these women in shame, 
coils to be kept not only quaffed, but covered from the light of day and the desires of men. Black women, we, I, me, were not in charge of our spectacularity according to said laws, these Tillon laws. Miro married a Creole woman while governing New Orleans. Ten years before the edict, Jefferson and the others had signed the Declaration of Independence, and 17 years after the edict, having passed from French hands to Spanish hands through French hands again, Louisiana was sold to Thomas Jefferson, who lived on Monticello, where Sally Hemings, who was not free and was not white, may have covered her hair, and was giving birth to Jefferson's fifth Creole child, Harriet. But back to the play. So to my surprise and slight horror, I did a reading of some pages recently, and my own relationship to white people, white men, really, came pouring back at me and into my ears. I guess I feel white people aren't moving fast enough to interrogate their whiteness, so I'm doing it for them. And there's a character named Swamp, a white man, older, who loves stick, loves Stick, this younger black woman who lives in the swamp. And I'm going to ask him some questions now. Swamp, 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 Spanish colony for long. 
Nor was the establishing of the racial order at the expense of African-descended women a project dropped through the fingers of the takeover nation, as embodied through Jefferson, as embodied through his purchase. I want to return to, to Sally for a moment. Sally Hemings. Sometime around the 4th of July, a year ago, maybe two... Sally Hemings' bedroom was discovered by archaeologists at Monticello. Discovered. <laughs> Sally Hemings, one of Thomas Jefferson's 607 slaves and mother of six of his children, is receiving historical repair. Her bedroom, renovated into a bathroom for tourists in the 1940s, has been restored at Monticello and is now available to tour rather than to pee in. The Monticello Museum's homepage has sweeping views of the plantation and pictures of modern children holding quill pins on the lawn, drawing in the sun. This is Monticello, home of the author of the Declaration of Independence, the page reads. There is a handy backslash to get to Sally's page, which contains the word mystery as her final descriptor. This will add to what we know we know about knowing Miss Hemings. It will add to the short list of remaining records we have of her. A bill from the boarding house on the Rue Seine in Paris. Her passport. The ledgers from Jefferson's household detailing how much he spent on her clothes. The memoirs by her son, Madison. 1802 newspaper accounts of her relationship with Jefferson. First released in an attempt to destroy his re-election campaign establishing the racial order at the expense of black women can be, though most often is not temporarily suspended for campaign purposes. The newspaper accounts turned into funny little songs, like the following, printed by the popular Philadelphia magazine Portfolio, to the tune of Yankee Doodle. Of all the damsels on the green, on mountain or in valley, a lash so luscious ne'er was seen as Montechel and Sally. Yankee Doodle, who's the noodle, what wife were so half handy to breed a flock of slaves to stock a black amour's the dandy. To breed a flock of slaves to stock a blackamore's the dandy. There was also the slave inventory at Monticello, which at age 57 valued Sally at $50. The Declaration of Independence, which contains her vaginal fluid, is priceless, of course. To understand how the building nation loves black women is to understand ownership. Listener, do you own my body, or do I? Is my sovereignty a possibility? Is yours? Prestige and placement upon podiums and placards is enabled by my erasure and eradication. You say, wear a kerchief and open your legs and I will never tell. Inside of or in spite of my curls, you ask me to cover them. And I cover them because it is the law. But then, 
I am the law. I make the law real. There is no law without this body, so who is sovereign, you or me? Who is real, who is invented, who is ready to adapt? Swamp, 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 you wicked man, giving nothing to the pen. When I leave the girl alone, live through someone else's bones, live through someone else's bones. Sally was granted her independence, not by Tom Tom, but by his daughter, sometime after his death. Hemings left Monticello and lived in Charlottesville for her remaining nine years. She is believed to have died in Charlottesville. Charlottesville. Though there is no body. Sally Hemings' bedroom was discovered last 4th of July and is going to be turned into her bedroom again, set up to look, probably, something like it might have looked when she slept there and kept there. It is a tiny room with a hearth where she warmed her body from Virginian frost, and talked to her belly while Tommy's children, all six, grew there, probably, grew there inside of her while she slept there and kept there, her body a monument maker to silence, to denial, to purposeful and polite amnesia, to everything we insist we are not. And not letting Ancestors are not waiting to be found. They are popping out of old walls and from under seemingly sturdy sidewalks. They are transforming tourist bathrooms into their own monuments and not letting us forget they built the wall on Wall Street. They are seeping from around and under vines that look like veins and veins that look like vases and voters and voices. Voices that do not ask to be chosen but are plum picked. It's you, it's you, you hear me, it's you I'm talking to and it won't do you no good to act like you don't know you hear me. No wonder you no good to act like you don't know you hear me. of seeing, viewing history from the perspective of the unknown, the persons who lived and breathed outside of written histories. I, I need Sally to make sense of swamps and swamps to make sense of words and words to make the real unsaid. Kara Walker couldn't be with me for this recording, so I I'm going to read a quote from her thesis, 2002. It is not uncommon for black women to serve as metaphors, signs which mean other things, in books, movies, and TV. It is always of great interest to the public to hear a black woman speak her mind, for it causes the public to react to other signs, like fast food stores, etc., 
to see if they too can speak. I have an addendum for that. Jillian Walker, no relation to Kara as far as I know. Addendum. It is not uncommon for black women to serve as metaphors, signs which mean other things, in books, movies, TV, or on podcasts. It is always of great interest to the public to hear a black woman speak her mind without the reckoning with her body, with her personhood. So she sits at the bottom of the Statue of Liberty and waits to be corrected on what she really means when she says, don't touch me. Some desire to enter our bodies for respite from weakness, which does not exist under monuments that do not bear our names. I have no thing you want unless it is my soul you seek, which has no place but me. There's a character in my play <laughs> named Alma that is probably still the biggest mystery to me. She, she lives in the swamp with these other women. She has birthed 13 children who all have names that begin with J. Jericho, Jeremiah, Josiah, Jabez, Jabez, Jeremith, Junia, Jeriel, and Juan, and four others who died. Alma is a woman who is religious, pious, but not in the Puritan sense, in the mysterious dark Catholic sense, the color of coagulated blood that has touched the air just long enough to be infused with black. Alma is black with red undertones, the color of dirt in Guinea or wherever she was lifted, the color of her sister's dirt in Gullah or wherever she landed. Brain split in half, half in the new world, half in the home she remembers less and less with each child born, with each man who touches her. She has her faith to make sense of the world. As we often have our faith to make sense of the world. Alma is also a seer who clings to Catholicism so as not to bring too much attention to her gifts. She does not want to be burned, you see. But she brings out her visions involuntarily. They happen, and she just speaks them out. It, it gonna be whole fires, whole fires burning we if we not care, careful. It gonna be whole fires through the age, time, through the different vessels. Fire just may as well come with the baby when it shoot out the mother. Fire may as well because they gonna burn in this place. It gonna be whole fires, whole fires burn we. If we not care, careful, it gonna be whole fires burning we. Through the ages, time, through the different vessels, fire may as well just come with the baby when it shoot out the mother. Fire may as well, because they gon' burn in this place. It gon' be If we not if care, we not care careful, it can be fires burning we through, through the ages, 
time, time through the different vessels. Fireman's As a woman, I feel the confusion between consent and coercion, feeling and submission, which is why your questions about my hair never seem fair. I can't think. Can I think? Let me think. Almost feel permission. I can almost feel permission. I have sought validation in the form of a lover 
ocean in the form of a lover, and he is seeing me. He is seeing me. He is seeing me. Or at least I think he is seeing me seeing my body and I'm not sure my body is mine unless he is looking so I keep looking at him because I am trying to find myself will you touch me will you touch me will you touch me this is how I will know I'm real for. It isn't only that I can't see, but I can't feel, can't feel. This is how I know I'm real. This is how I'll know I'm real for. It isn't only that I can't see, but I can't feel, can't feel. This is how I know I'm real. This is how I'll know I'm real. In slavery times, I love saying that. In slavery times, cotton did not feel good, nor did grits, nor did bare feet on uneven, muddy pathways, but I'm sure sometimes I must have gotten busy feeling the grass or the vein of a fern, so maybe ferns can bring me back and I can stop looking at you to tell where I am. I have sought validation in the form of a lover. isn't only that I can't see, but I can't feel, can't feel. This is how I know I'm real. This is how I'll know I'm real. The feeling is mutual. The feeling is mutual. Is it now? If love cannot exist without mutuality, and mutuality cannot be real without freedom, if freedom is, definition, an ability to be in truth without retaliation, if, if love is not control, possession, subjugation, manipulation, hold, hold, hold on, if you have touched me for centuries without asking because you love me and love is out of your control and I am controlled by your lack of control because you control control or you have said that that is so, so much for so long that it is true because speaking is truth and writing is truth and truth lives beyond the access to the pen that would set us free then there is no love here. America is still making herself. She is not above or beneath the need for making, remaking, unraveling, raveling fully for the first time. There is no love here. But there are bones that show the way to something more than what was had. And that is the dust I keep breathing into this body. This body. This is the body. <laughs>